On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking math, math, numbers, because the numbers are in on the EQAO scores for this area. And, you know, we're pretty good at reading and writing. In fact, you can give some good applause to the Hamilton Public School Board for the numbers they got in reading and writing for the grade six students. But math, yee, not so good. Why is that? We're going to talk to the math guru. That's what she calls herself. We're going to talk to the math guru to find out why it is so difficult, apparently, to teach kids math. We're also going to be chatting about Austin Matthews. You heard about Captain Underpants, right? Yeah, huh? Uh, Will this affect his bid to be captain of the Leafs? And Simone Lawrence getting a fine for a, a late headshot. We've seen that before. Oh, and you're going to want to stick around. You're really going to want to tune in because 40 years ago this week, the new music, and if you were someone who grew up in the 70s or 80s around here, you know the show, The New Music. The New Music launched. Jeannie Becker from The New Music, one of the co-hosts, and then she went on to fashion television. But the host of The New Music will join us to chat about that show and the impact that it had. Stick around. Today on The Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Math sucks. The great Jimmy Buffett with an anthem for all of us who have struggled through math at one time or another. Scott Radley Show. EQAO scores are out today, the specific ones. And if you're looking at Hamilton's public school board, Catholic did all right. The public school board, though, uh, there are some problems here. Now, reading and writing in, among grade six students, not bad. 73% passed the or reached the provincial standard in reading, 73% in writing, which is about 8% behind the provincial average. But when you consider how many people there are in Hamilton public schools, downtown in the lower city who may not be first-generation Canadians, who English may not be their first language. 28% apparently fall into that category. I would say 73% is, is pretty good. I would say that's a strong pass. I'll, I'll, I'll give some applause to that one. Math, though, yeesh, math. Um, the Ontario average to reach the standard in this province for grade six students, 48%. 48% of kids were able to reach the provincial standard. Hamilton's number, 36% of kids. And that's actually up one point from last year. But considering it was 38% four years ago, it looks like we are just spinning our wheels. We're not really getting anywhere. It doesn't look like anyway. What, What is going on? Well, I want to bring in... The math guru. Her name is Vanessa Vicaria. Uh, she is a math expert. She's a math instructor, and she has the Math Guru website. Uh, Vanessa, thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me. What was that song at the beginning? So negative. I know. I know. It's uh, you will. I, I'm not guessing you're going to add that to your website. That would seem to defeat <laughs> the purpose. Uh, you're not, and I don't expect you to be. I mean, you're not an expert in the Hamilton system. Mm-hmm. But when you hear numbers like this. Do any theories, because you've been around math, you work with math, do you get any Mm -hmm. theories about what might be going on, about why things seem to be so bleak? I do. You know, I think um, we've been talking a lot about the EQAO this past month, and it's very easy to jump to conclusions, right? To just simply say, teachers don't know how to teach math, or we need a new curriculum, and there is some truth to both of those. And we've we've heard that from lots and lots of people saying those things. Exactly. But I would like to just get listeners to think bigger picture because this is a big, big problem. It's a systemic problem and we need to solve it. So there are some things I just want to point out, you know, we had been discussing earlier um, how the EQAO is designed 
there are some problems with the test alone. So not to say that there isn't a problem with math education, but one of the biggest things that happens in the math portion of the EQAO is the language used really, really, really isolates those who don't have English as a first language. A lot of math problems are contextual, right? So if you don't understand the context, you aren't able to solve the problem. Also, words are used differently in math. So if you have kind of an okay understanding of the language, but not a great one, it will really interfere with your ability to actually carry out the math. So, so with what I was sorry, so with what I was saying yeah. right off the top, when you have a lot of people who are in this city who may not be first first English exactly. as not as a first language, they may be getting up to speed enough to pass or to do okay in the reading and writing component, yeah. but you're now throwing a new wrinkle when you throw math into the language. Yeah, if you think about it, uh, you know, first people who speak English as a first language, the area they struggle with the most is already word problems, right? Like it's, that's already the thing. And actually the EQAO showed that the area that needs the most work is critical thinking and problem solving, not the basic math skills. So for everyone saying, yes, this just shows we need to go back to basic math, it actually does not show that at all. The results very specifically showed that in basic math skills, we were improving. It's the critical thinking and problem solving skills where we're continuing to decline. So Vanessa, most people listening right now, I would assume, and I think I'm very accurate with this, have never taken an EQAO test themselves. Their kids Mm -hmm. may have, their grandkids may have, their nieces and nephews may have. Give me one example, if you can, because you've probably helped kids prepare for this. Like what's a typical question then that you would find on an EQAO? You don't have to give me the numbers and everything, but just how it would be looked. Yeah. I mean, honestly, there's such a wide range of stuff. You You can get basic calculation questions, like, you know, multiplying fractions, but you might get more conceptual questions like you know like jimmy is traveling on a bicycle at five kilometers an hour like susie is traveling at three kilometers they go this distance like who gets there farther you might get something like that so it's it's all over the gamut but another thing to take into account honestly is our math curriculum and testing methods are so dated like we we continue to teach math in essentially the same way i know people think that there's been this huge crazy curriculum change there really hasn't The idea of the new math, we have thrown in more critical thinking, we've thrown in more problem-solving stuff, we've changed some stuff around, but honestly, it's still basically the same thing. And the truth is, it's 2019. Kids, as you know, and as parents know, and as your listeners know, they are so different now, right? Like, they have so many other things at their fingertips, they expect to get answers very quickly, they are over-programmed, they have tons of extracurriculars, it's just a different world, and they all their brains are different. Like, you know, we have technology we never had back then, so they simply don't think the way we used to, and we need, like, not a curriculum change, we don't need to go back to basics, because I'm sure that people who grew up in a basic system like yourself and like myself hated math as well, right? So it was bad back then and it's bad now. We need an overhaul. We need to really scrap the curriculum and start designing for the kids of today, not the kids of yesterday. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of people saying this about math, apparently. Uh, We're talking about EQAO scores are out today for the Hamilton schools. Hamilton public grade six students. Just so you know where, what we're talking about here, because the, the results weren't great. 36% met the provincial average. But here's the thing. To achieve the provincial average in the test, you have to get either level three or level four. Those are the good ones. Then there's level two and one, obviously. Our grade six students, 26% of them only reached level one. 
26%, you have to get three or four to pass this thing to get to the provincial average. 26% hit the first level. So we're not even with a lot of them close. Just before the break, my guest, Vanessa Vicario, who is the math guru. You can find her stuff online, themathguru.ca. We're talking about this. And just before the break, Vanessa, you said, you know what, we got to tear this thing up, this whole system up pretty much and start over and do it right. How would that look? Well, I think there's a few things to take into account. You know, the system consists of many things. There's a curriculum, there are teachers, and there, you know, are parents that are involved. And some things that come to mind that I wanted to bring up that have been sort of hot topics, teacher training, right? There's been all this talk about testing teachers and all sorts of controversy. The number one most important thing in a classroom is to have a teacher who is comfortable with the math that's being taught. So, a lot of teachers now, you know, they're, they have this kind of newer curriculum to teach, and many of them didn't take math at teacher's college or even in university, and they're not comfortable enough to carry out a rather complicated curriculum. So the first thing to do is to train teachers, not to just test them. We all know that we can study for a test and not know anything on that test, right? Like you've been there. You've studied for a test and gotten a good mark, and then afterwards you've Rarely. gotten it all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so... You know, we need teachers who are really comfortable with math, who are prepared to teach the math. The next thing is, one of the biggest issues, I think... Well, look, hold on, let me just stop you yeah. for just one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we say that, and I think your point is bang on, and I've heard many experts, Mary Reed from U of T, who talks yes. about this oh, stuff, she'll, she'll talk about this all the time. We need to have teachers who know what they're doing. But how do you, we have so many, and, and I, I'm not being sexist, this is other people have said this, so many women who go through teacher's college who don't take math because that's not their area of strength, unlike you. How do we convince them or get them or encourage them to do that then? Oh my gosh. Okay. You're literally speaking to the right person. First of all, for everyone listening, I failed grade 11 math twice. It was not my thing either until I had like a life-changing moment. And I actually have a master's degree in math education and feminist studies because I studied this exact thing. This is what I work with is how to get women comfortable with themselves as math learners, because obviously women are just as capable with math. But it's a systemic problem that they're made to believe that they're not capable. Obviously, we could talk about this for hours, but we won't. Um, the, the real thing is, you know, many teachers who become elementary teachers do not come from a math background, right? That's not a requirement to get into teacher's right. college. The issue, I think, is once you're in teacher's college, and this is something that Mary Reed is doing at U of T, is creating programs and making it a part, a mandatory part of teacher training programs that the students have to learn the math and they have to be able to carry it out. They have to be able to perform in the classroom. So actually, you know, teachers' training programs now are two years long. There is now time to have a math course to get the, the students to do the work. So I, th- I, you know, very few universities are doing this now, but I think they're starting to. It's I know great idea. Does it. Yeah, that is one of the biggest things, right, is, you know, I just went to talk to a class of teacher trainees the other day, and as you said, all the women in the class put up their hand and said they were not comfortable teaching elementary school math. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, if you're going to go into the class, and you're, and it's hard, right? Like, they don't have a, a, a course that's going to teach them all the math. And that's unfair, right? They, but they are going to have to learn the math to get in the classroom, and that's lots of extra work for them, and they're going to do it. But it would be really nice if we just made that a requirement. Now, I'm going to say this, and this may be controversial, but I think I'm a genius. I think that since this is a huge problem, we should have specialized math teachers at the elementary level. When you go to Why high not? school, yes, you have a math teacher in high school. You don't have a person who's randomly supposed to learn math. I think that math is important enough at the foundation level that there should be a math teacher that you go to math class. In grade six, 
you go to your period that's math and you have a different teacher that specializes in math. We have phys ed teachers in elementary school. Exactly, and music teachers. Thank you. Exactly. I've said this forever. I really think that would be a huge, huge, huge step. A huge step. So, so okay, like, so we only have a minute. Why have we not... Oh th- that's very... I know, we could do this for seven hours. <laughs> Wh- and we'll have you back to talk about it again. But Vanessa, if that's so obvious to you and to me, and I bet to everybody listening, why are school boards not already doing this? Oh my God. But that, I can't answer that in one minute, right? Like, because you know <laughs> as well as I do, there's so much red tape. There's so much behind the scenes. There, There's too much, like, who knows? Who knows? But I bet the answer isn't one that we want to hear. But everything we keep hearing is that everything is being done at the board level, at the union level, at everything else. Everything is being done for the students. And look, I'm not dumping on teachers, but it doesn't sound like it. No, and think about all the education cuts. That's not done for the students, right? That's not done for the students. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. There's, you know, people always would rather a Band-Aid solution. One of the big ones, I'll just throw, I mean, resources, right? Like, how much would it cost to actually do this, to actually make a real difference? They probably, you know, probably much more than anyone's willing to spend, but we need to start treating this like a priority because this is actually our future. Well, maybe, and we got to run, but maybe, and we're going to have you back for sure, but maybe it would cost a lot and maybe it wouldn't. If you had a math teacher for an elementary school Mm -hmm. and you just didn't have one other teacher, you replaced one homeroom teacher with a math teacher who rotated, then it doesn't cost you any different. Uh, Well, why don't we just go in there and... Give them our proposal. I think you and I have gotten. There we go. We solved it. <laughs> Ten minutes, and we've solved all the problems. It is. Uh, it, listen, we are going to have you back because you're, you're terrific, and you got a lot of great ideas. Vanessa Vacare, you can go to themathguru.ca. Go look her up. There's all kinds of stuff there. Her book, all kinds of things. Go there. Oh. Vanessa, thanks for the time today. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let me bring in Rick Zamprin of 900 CHML fame, uh, sir. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm okay. Uh, Rick had a great piece on his blog today. You can read it online. Austin Matthews may have blown his chance of becoming captain of the Maple Leafs. Uh, I think most people by now, Rick, have heard this story, but uh, take a few seconds and explain what he did that may have made him blow his chances here. Well, he is alleged to have uh, basically, in, in, in the middle of the night, back in May, uh, with a group of friends... Uh, scare the heck out of a security guard who has obviously filed this uh, disorderly conduct charge. Uh, and uh, basically, after uh, what appears to be a night of drinking, uh, Matthews and his friends uh, approached the vehicle where this security guard uh, was sitting in, uh, doing some paperwork, and jiggled the door handle. And again, this is 2 in the morning. Diggle, jiggled the door handle to, uh, I guess, get a rise or a reaction uh, from this security guard. And um, she eventually gets out of the vehicle to, you know, investigate what's going on and um, realizes that it's Matthews because this is his condo uh, complex. He has, uh, you know, been in contact with her before, apparently. Uh, And, uh, you know, so as she gets out of the vehicle, she understands that it's Matthews and a bunch of his friends, uh, asks them to, you know, just get out of here to leave the area. So on the way to the... Um, elevators, Matthews drops his pants, bends over, and then uh, grabs his rear end. So, yeah, he's charged with... With his, with his underwear still on. With his underwear still on. With his underwear still yeah, on. Not a, not a full moon. Not a full moon, maybe a half moon, but still. Um, so, uh, today, uh, he uh, was, uh, you know, appearing in court, or at least his lawyer was there in Scottsdale, Arizona, on, a, on his behalf. 
to answer to the disorderly conduct charge. He did a news conference today with the media, uh, basically saying that, uh, you know, he regrets the instance, uh, he's looking ahead, uh, you know, didn't, didn't uh, want to put the Maple Leafs in that uh, position, but has, and, uh, and is now, uh, I guess, trying to move forward. On a, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10 on the serious meter, where do you place this, where, this as far as an offense? As far as a criminal offense, this is this is the, the lowest you can get. This would be around a one. This is disorderly conduct, you know, bugging a person. Uh, it would be similar to uh, a mischief call, you know, throwing eggs at a house. Right, and and you know, look, it's not nothing. A woman claimed that she was very fearful for her safety later tonight. Although I did find it interesting that when this was happening, she got out of the car to talk to him rather than driving away, which would be, I think, if I was worried someone was breaking into my car, my first reaction. Nonetheless, it, it he did something that distressed someone, and then he dropped his pants and showed his underwear, um, so it's not nothing. But do you think, really, it becomes a disqualifier to be the captain of the Maple Leafs? Well, I think it can be. I'm not sure if it is. And I say that because... We don't really know if he is the Maple Leafs guy for the captain. It's been widely anticipated that this announcement is going to be made. Some are speculating that Matthews is the guy, and now, because of this, shouldn't be the guy. But we really don't know what the decision is and, and whether it even has been made. You know, there's, there's three legitimate options I see for the Maple Leafs in terms of their next captain. One is Matthews. He's in the mix. You know, he's the highest-paid player on the team, one of the highest in the league. Uh, probably the most skilled player on the team. Number two is John Tavares, who wore the C with the New York Islanders for several seasons, and uh, he, too, amongst the highest-paid players in the league. And the other is Morgan Riley, a guy who is entering, I think, his seventh season now with the Maple Leafs, who is just one of the most upstanding individuals, not only in the Leafs, but in the NHL, and is also you know, under uh, contract for a few more years, so he's not going anywhere. So those are really the, you know, the three-headed monster in terms of Maple Leafs captain uh, choices. So, yeah, it, it remains to be seen now how they move to the next step. Because here's the th- here's the reason why I sort of and, and your piece was great. I mean, look, I'm not dumping on your piece, but I, I, I there were a lot of people, including many who went way beyond what you said and said he can never now. He's blown his chance. He can never do it. We've right. just spent a week or so hearing from lots and lots and lots of people across this country, including the person at the center of it, that a 29-year-old man repeatedly wearing blackface shouldn't disqualify someone from being prime minister. <laughs> and it would sound like now we're setting a higher standard of expectation for the captain of the Maple Leafs and the person running our country. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Well, I mean, it, really, at the, at the end of the day... Um, if Justin Trudeau, instead of wearing blackface, had simply dropped his pants, bent over, and grabbed his underpants on his butt, right. it would have been a 30-second story. People would have said, come on, move along. I mean, I just, I, I'm interested by this because it seems like, you know, we, we say we don't want to overreact to stuff. And, and again, lots of people, I mean, go on Twitter. There's lots of people commenting on Austin Matthews, how he should no longer can be the captain. And it's like, yeah, you know what? It was stupid. It was dumb. He, he was 21 at the time, and he did a stupid 21-year-old thing. But my goodness, here's the thing: you've been around enough sports. What what is the role, or what is the require? What does a captain do on a hockey team or on any sports team? Well, I mean, he is or she is the you know the, the face of the team, the uh, the person who stands up when times are tough, uh, the person who has to rally the troops, the 
person who's going to speak to the media, uh, the person who's going to get the finger pointed at them when things go awry, and, and more often than not gets the finger pointed at them when things are going great, because they're the leader of this entity, of this group. Um, in Toronto with the Maple Leafs, and, and we know how you know iconic and massive and, and fishbowlish Toronto is with this hockey team, uh, it, it takes a special individual uh, to be captain of the Leafs because there is so much media pressure. And I think the expectations, unfairly, are so high on the captain of the team. I just I would bet you today that if you asked all the players that none of the players in the Leafs truly are looking at him and going, oh man, he's lost our respect. I think behind closed doors they all thought this was hilarious and there probably was a Captain Underpants book in his locker today. I wouldn't doubt it. And, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think, this, I think the players know that this wasn't an egregious offense. You know, this isn't Ray Rice assaulting his fiance. This isn't Tyreek Hill assaulting his significant other and uh, and injuring his son, his infant son. Uh, this isn't Adrian Peterson uh, using a switch on his son uh, to, uh, you know, administer yeah, punishment. It's, it's minor. You know, it's, it seems yeah, like it anyway. Extremely minor. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking with Rick Zamperin about this Austin Matthews story, which I, again, Rick, I just, I, I'm having a hard time getting too, too, too fired up about this. If he had hit someone, if he had driven drunk, if he had, I mean, he was drunk by the sounds of it, or at least allegedly, but I just, it seems like an, an awful lot of a tempest for not very much. And yet we seem to be very bent, a lot of people very bent out of shape about it. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. I mean, if if this happens and Austin Matthews is a member of the Arizona Coyotes or the Florida Panthers, you know, a small market or smaller market team, one that's not at the center of the hockey universe, I I don't, it doesn't garner the headlines that it has in Toronto. But because it is Austin Matthews in Toronto, it is an implosion. Um, I think the most interesting part of this is now how do the Leafs react to it in terms of naming their captain? Because, you know, as I said in the blog today, uh, you know, how quickly did the team know about this? And if they knew even a few weeks ago, uh, knowing that, you know, the process of naming a captain was coming about and they had been talking about it uh, during, uh, you know, training camp, um, you know, were they prepared to make an announcement then and said, you know what, now that this is going to come to light, we'll hold off, we'll let it transpire and blow over, and then we'll name Matthews the captain, if he is, in fact, you know, the choice. The, the, the flip side of that was naming him captain in the summer, knowing that this was going to come about, and then have to backtrack to say, you know what, we still stand by our decision. You know, we weren't surprised by this. We knew it would happen. It'd be, it, it, it's a quandary at the end of the day, no matter what they did. Let us change tack just a little bit to a different, well, a lot, to a different sport. Another guy in a little bit of trouble, though, is my point, my segue there. Uh, Hamilton Ticats, Simone Lawrence today gets suspended, not gets suspended, gets fined. The maximum amount that the CFL can fine him, That the amount is not disclosed. But it was for a hit that he delivered to the back of the head and the neck of Edmonton quarterback uh, Logan Kilgore back when they were playing Edmonton. And it was... Rick, it wasn't the same, obviously, as the hit that was delivered to, to um, Zach Caleros in week one. But it had some elements that were similar. You've got a quarterback who is down or going down and clearly vulnerable, and you've got Lawrence coming in 
late, well after the play, after he probably should or surely should have been able to see the quarterback was going down. And he goes and hits the guy in the head. Should we be surprised that there was a fine here? Uh, no, we shouldn't be surprised that there's a fine because now we have a repeat offender. I think if this was a first-time offense, he may have gotten fined, but not the maximum amount. And I don't think this was a suspendable offense, even though he has been suspended before, because the hit wasn't as uh, you know wasn't as bad as those Zach Calero. Well, just a second, just a second. So I'm going to jump yeah. in on this one because this always drives me nuts about leagues and their suspension and discipline right. policies. If Kilgore had not got up. Simone Lawrence would have been suspended again. If he had been injured to the point where he didn't get up and he missed some plays, Simone Lawrence would have been suspended. So that hit, the fact that Kilgore wasn't injured had nothing to do with Simone Lawrence hitting him dirty but not too dirty. It was entirely good fortune. And to me, why are we disciplining players based on the outcome rather than the offense? Mm -hmm. Well, I think... I think this one's a little bit different, too, because it wasn't a direct headshot. Both of them were late. Uh, both of them were uncalled for because, you know, the, the quarterback is either, uh, you know, giving himself out or already practically down on the turf. I mean, what is a tackle going to do at that point? His knees are down. He's not going to fumble the football. And even if he does, the video evidence is going to, you know, overturn that. Uh, I, I don't think the injury to the player uh, should should factor in on the punishment. You know, whether it's a suspension or a fine, the hit is the hit. And right. Whether it's a headshot or not, that should be what officials are looking at. And I, I think in this case, they looked at that. It wasn't as horrible. It wasn't as a uh, you know a deliberate headshot like he delivered on, on Zach Caleros. But it was still a late headshot to a downed yeah. player. And he just got, not just, but he got back from a two-game suspension. Almost just. He's, what, had three games or two games since then, since the suspension was served. And he does it again. To me, there has to be a suspension here, even if it's a game, because you're just coming back from doing the same thing. It just it to me, Simone Lawrence is either relishing this role as the the hated villain of the CFL, or he is a really, really, really slow learner. And I don't know which one it is. And you know what? We shouldn't just put Simone in this target because there's other players. Absolutely, not only, not, not only in the CFL but the NFL. Absolutely, as well, that hit players unnecessarily. I know it's a very fast game. I know it's organized chaos. You know, if if you ever have a chance, and I'm speaking to the listeners here, of standing on the sideline during a pro football game, it is incredibly violent and fast. And I know things happen in an instant. But there are too many cases in which a player does not need to be tackled. Um, I know sometimes some players want to send a message, quote-unquote, but I think we've come to the realization that some messages don't have to be sent because the other side of that equation is a debilitating injury and one that could last a lifetime and maybe end someone's career. And listen, to any Ticat fans who are listening, and they do because Rick is the host of the fifth quarter and he is a great voice of and about and for the Ticats, it's not about dumping on the Ticats here because I assure you that if this was going the other way and it was Ticat quarterbacks that were being hit in the head, mm-hmm. the screams for more than a fine Rick would have been, we got to go, but would have been absolutely deafening. Absolutely yeah. deafening. And, and the saddest thing is, is they're never going to, and I say they, the, the league, any league, right. never going to get it right. I mean, they, they have to follow parameters. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Rick Zamprin, you can hear him all the time. I mean, almost 24 hours a day here on CHML. <laughs> Practically. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
that music sound familiar to anybody? It should. I came across something online somewhere this week. I think it might have been Facebook. I'm not even sure where I saw it. Anyway, it said that the new music, that's the theme song for the new music, the TV show, debuted 40 years ago this week. And if you are of my vintage, grew up in the 70s or the 80s in southern Ontario specifically, you know the new music. It was, at its time, the coolest show on TV. It's where you you were exposed to all kinds of new artists who you'd soon be listening to, or if you were already listening to some up-and-coming artists, that's where you were going to see them. Uh, Even those who had been doing the circuit and playing great music for a long, long time, they were going to pop up on there as well. If you wanted to know what the heck you were talking about around school or at the mall or at the arcade or wherever, you watched the new music. Anyway, I couldn't believe it's been 40 years, but I looked it up and yeah, it is in fact true. It is 40 years. So it seemed like a perfect time to bring on someone whose voice is instantly recognizable to an awful lot of people. She was one of the first two hosts of that show, Jeannie Becker. Jeannie, how are you tonight? I'm great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. I can't believe it's been 40 years. My Lord, Yeah, flies when you're having fun. Do you know, by the way, I had to look this one up because I vaguely remembered the name. Do you remember, Did you ever know or do you know the name of that song that was the theme song? Yeah, pa- Papa's Got a Brand New Pig Bag. <laughs> That's a great name. One of the all-time <laughs> great song names. It means nothing, I don't think. But, um, but it's funny how that became so identifiable with the show, just like Obsession became so identifiable with fashion television. Right. Yeah, great app, you know, show runs for a long time and certain tune comes on and, and yeah, it conjures up all kinds of memories. And you know, you mentioned that because right now I'm sure there are at least a few people listening who are a little, maybe a little younger than you and I saying, wait a second, that woman from fashion television knows music? <laughs> yes, yeah, you've done well, a lot of things. I think you have to really have been through the, uh, the, the wars of the music industry <laughs> to understand the battlefield of fashion. I mean, it's both uh, very crazy arenas and, uh, talking to all those rock stars for all those years and riding on those smoky tour buses and hanging out in the studios and backstage shows with them, I think that really prepared me for a life in the snake pit of fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, Jeannie, what kind of, and I'm trying to hard to remember, but I mean, we're going back to the early 80s now, late 70s. What kind of music shows of any kind were there in Canada when you guys started? Well, I mean, there were the shows, um, you know, well, in Canada, I don't know, there was like a, you know, there used to be shows like The Pig and Whistle and Kaylee. <laughs> there weren't really a lot of, uh, you know, rock and roll shows. Um, pop music and rock were featured on shows out of the UK. Um, like they had a show called Top of the Pop that was quite popular uh, back in the day, like in the 70s. And then, of course, in the States, you'd have American Bandstand or, you know, have Soul Train. Um, that was a, a pretty cool uh, show that was all about, you know, the the Motown sound, but there was never a music magazine show. Right. It wasn't these like this. Were, yeah. These show, you know, those shows that I just mentioned, well, the bands or the musicians would come on, they would do their thing, perform, and then a host would come over and interview them for a few minutes, and that was that. But our show, and our show is really thanks to the incredible genius of the late John Martin, who was just such a visionary, a guy that came here from Manchester, uh, in the 70s, and he was working at the CBC for a while, and then he pitched this idea for a music magazine show to Moses, and Moses and his incredible wisdom, you know, just said, okay, yeah, knock yourself out, let's do it. And this was a magazine-style show with uh, different segments, and we would just go on location. And, and the style of the show, too, the way it was shot, really, this was before,
before MTV. Like MTV in the States hadn't even launched yet. So we were the first ones to really go on the road with rock stars and, and go into the studios with them and hang out backstage with them. And we would shoot with one camera. We had these one-man bands. So we would do like swish pans, and it was all very, very raw, very, very in, it really suitable for that whole rock and roll mentality. Um, and it set a whole new style for the way television uh was produced. Yeah, th- this was not solid gold. Let's put it that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was, this was very raw and very irreverent and uh, very edgy. It was very in-your-face, as Sean used to say, in-your-face television. Well, and the thing is, I watched a few clips on YouTube today, just, you know, going back and just to sort of get the feel again in my head, because I went mean, I watched it a lot of the time. And, and, and the thing that really struck me was, that if you were to do the same show today, and I don't know that you could, I'll, I'll maybe get your thought on that afterwards, but if you were to do the same show today, you to get an interview with Name the Artist, you'd have to go through 15 people, agents. And, yeah. And, well, I mean, it wasn't that, you know, you still had to go through certain, you know, uh, uh, roadblocks and, you know, the PR people, as lovely as they are, sometimes are the biggest roadblocks of all, and they're, you know, it's all a very political thing, and of course you have the record companies, but we had a couple of things going for us, but first of all, there were so few shows that we were the only show of its kind. Like, no one was asking Rod Stewart for a TV interview when he came to play Toronto, or the police, well, they were just in, in their infancy, really, when we started our relationship with them. So, you know, it, it was just such a great request. Like, you know, Rick James, like, oh, yeah, come to my house in Buffalo and ride, you know, a skidoo with me. And, you know, and people were just very, you know, very uh, anxious to, to have us record their world in that way. Um, you know, obviously, nowadays, there's so much going on, and everyone's vying for a little piece of the pie, and everyone wants to get in. And, and we had the chance to establish relationships with a lot of these artists from early on. So then as the years went by and as some of these, this type of entertainment program became more and more ubiquitous, we had a certain credibility. You know, we were appreciated and we were never, you know, critical people. We were celebrating uh, things. You know, we weren't music critics at all. Um, so, so that worked in our favor as well. Well, one of the clips that I watched was uh, you in a what it looked like a really dingy and I'm guessing really stinky dressing room with Iggy Pop and there was smoke uh, everywhere and there's a bunch of guys yeah, it looks like yeah. after the concert there's booze everywhere and I'm thinking yeah. there is not a record executive alive who would say yeah do an interview with those yeah. guys there that like that that was uh, not a pretty picture and probably the wor- you know listen you know how long I've been in television I mean well I started interviewing in 19 19- 79 um and to this day i still you know i'm on television doing stuff uh i have never in my life walked out of an interview but i walked out of that one because iggy was just being a real creep i mean you know he was listen we all uh hail iggy pop i mean he seemed to be very cool in some ways but during that particular period he was really just a, a bit of a mess uh really high and drunk on you know drink jack daniels right out of the bottle um, Being a rock star. Called, that was in the middle of the night. Not all rock stars were as grotty and grungy and, and crazy as that. Most actually weren't. They knew what they were very image conscious. And I guess Iggy, you know, was doing that for his kind of, you know, a rough and tough image. But uh, no, he was just very rude to me. Um, and, you know, for anyone that's seen that interview on YouTube, and now everyone I'm sure is going to go Google it. <laughs> but. Uh, I, had, I was having dinner with my parents late uh, 
one night and I got a call from John Martin, you know, get down to the music hall on the Danforth right now and, you know, you can get an interview with Iggy Pop. So Iggy had come on to me, um, and I have a tape to prove that, too, <laughs> um, uh, uh, several, you know, maybe a couple of years before that at some rock festival uh, somewhere in Toronto, outside of Toronto. And so he knew me, you know, we had a good relationship. You know, we were, you know, I thought, you know, he trusted me and was very nice and cute and naughty, but in a nice way. And I went down, I thought, okay, great. It was like midnight or whatever by the time I got there. And, and Iggy was sitting there, like, just like I say, half out of it. And uh, he just started picking on me and saying things like kind of insulting me, uh, for my bourgeois, you know, I wasn't dressed in my usual new music garb, I guess, because I had been having dinner with my parents and I was a little dressed up. And he just sort of saw me as this, uh, I don't know, this privileged, you know, kind of woman that shouldn't have the, you know, the honor of sitting across from a kind of punk rock god mm. like him. At the time, it was horrible, really. And I just said, you know what? And I, now looking back at that tape, I'm so proud of myself <laughs> for having, you know, the gut to just say, you know what? We're out of here. Rap. It's a rap. And then he goes, what do you mean? What did I do? And it's like, no, no, we're out of here. Now that has lived on because, of course, we love to show everything that happened to us, warts and all. Sure. John Martin was thrilled to be able to present that bit of television. You, to the world, and, Jean, you know, it's lived on. Jeannie, you mentioned your parents, and this is apropos of nothing, but I read something. Were your parents both Holocaust survivors? Yes, they were, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. That's remarkable. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, it made me a survivor, and I think you had to have that kind of um, composition, let's say, that kind of um, that kind of spirit in order to survive the, the perils of that uh, kind of dark and dangerous uh, rock scene that I covered for all those years, and then going right into the fashion scene. That was a very cruel place, and it truly was survival of the fittest. The At the beginning of the new music, when you guys started, it seemed like it kind of fit exactly with what was going on with City TV, a lot of the stuff, which was basically, if it looks like anything else that's ever been on TV, we're not interested. That sort of yeah. seemed like it was the philosophy. Right. Did you? How did you end up there? Did you know music, or did you... No, how did I, you? not at all. Okay. I knew music, like I was a big music fan, like, you know, everyone else that grew up in the 60s with me, just like I didn't really know fashion before I started doing fashion television. You learn a lot by osmosis. But I um, I had been hired by Chum Radio in 1978 after three years of working at the CBC Radio in Newfoundland. I got a job at Chum, 1050 Chum, of top 40 station. And uh, it was that year that they happened to buy this really funky cable TV station, City TV. Channel 79. And, uh, they decided to cross-promote their radio personalities on TV. The two radio personalities being myself, who was hired as the Good News Girl on 1050 Chum, and J.D. Roberts, who is now John Roberts of Fox News, yeah. White House correspondent, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so J.D. was the boss jock at 1050 Chum at the time, and he and I went over um, to host this show, and we were just making it up as we went along, flying by the seat of our pants. You know, I think Wilder Penfield, who was a music critic for the Toronto Sun at the time, uh, called us video virgins, which I <laughs> we were. I mean, I'd been an actress in my teens, but I had n- never done that kind of journalism with a small J on television. Um, so it was just a brilliant time. It was an incredible time. We got to blaze a whole lot of trails. And again, under the, you know, the, the guidance of the brilliant John Martin, who was just all about smash and grab TV. We smashed and we grabbed and we got some incredible stuff. And now all that 
all those archives, I believe, are still, you know, in existence um, at Bell Media. I hope so. There'll be someone should dig them up and, you know, do a whole, a whole new program about the history of, uh, of rock and roll. Absolutely. What were the instructions? What were yeah. your instructions when they hired you, when they gave you this okay. show? What did they well, say to do with the show? Well, I remember the first thing that I was concerned about, well, what am I going to wear? You know, and John Martin said, just open up Rolling Stone magazine and look at what all the rock stars' girlfriends are wearing and dress like that. <laughs> said, oh, okay, got it, got it. You know, so I went out and bought myself a pair of tight vinyl pants and a, you know, sequin t-shirts or whatever, whatever we were doing at the time. I don't know. Um, and uh, it was just be real, you know, be real, be as real and as raw and as unpretentious and, you know, and as honest as you can be. And I didn't want to do as much research as maybe, you know, John or some of the other producers were, were trying to get me to do because I wanted to discover it as I went along. I, I, I wasn't a seasoned music journalist at all. I didn't know. I, I wanted to be a fan so I could, you know, be the person that the fans who were watching could really identify with. And I think they did. And, you know, we took people by the hand every week and took them through that rock and roll jungle. And, you know, I, I, I think it's, and that's why it worked because people could relate to us. I mean, we were just a couple of kids from the suburbs, basically. I mean, I, well, I was about, well, when I started doing the show, I maybe 27 or something. Um, and I lived in New York and I'd lived in Paris going to school and stuff. But I, you know, I hadn't really uh, had a gritty, gritty kind of lifestyle. And all of a sudden there I was, you know, meeting all my old rock idols, too, which was really a trip. You know, that was just fantasy time for me. And I looked at the, that world in wide-eyed wonder. And, and I think, the, you know, all the rockers that I, you know, talked to really kind of appreciated that. And I had some tough interviews. I mean, people from Tom Waits, you know, or the Ramones. Like the Ramones, got, you, you can go online and see stuff that I've done with the Ramones. Where, you know, they, they're like just, Joey Ramone was just like sitting there, not even like making contact with anything. <laughs> and I had to just like carry on like everything was normal. Like this was a very funny period in music as you know the late 70s early 80s with Susie and the Banshees and Jello Biafra and all, like all these punk rock acts that were you know kind of dangerous and kind of scary but uh, the clash I mean we did you know some great interviews with the clash again I think that was probably available online it made it into the clash documentary you know Joe Strummer was not exactly a warm and fuzzy person but you know we just it was do or die. We just did. <laughs> well, one of my all-time favorite movies of any genre, anything, is Spinal Tap. And <laughs> as someone who's been in music, I, you must have seen Spinal Tap 50 times. Absolutely. Did, loved it. Did yeah. you ever feel like you were the female version of Marty DeBerge, who was yeah. sitting there talking yeah. to these people who are giving you these deep <laughs> philosophical answers just after they've done a concert in their <laughs> underpants while singing about sex the whole time? Probably, yeah. I mean, I did. I mean, you know, it's like, I had a great relationship with Frank Zappa, for example, and who was, you know, Frank Zappa could be very tough on journalists, but for some reason he took to me, and not in a way that he was coming on to me, or it wasn't like that. It was, it, he became an avuncular kind of character. For me, he would give me career advice, and he was, he was the nicest, nicest man ever, and the sweetest, just a kind and gentle soul, or that's the way I saw him. Uh, a lot of that interview is featured in uh, the movie uh, Eat My Eat That. What's it called? Eat That Question, which is you can see that on Netflix. So it's great to see that some of these old interviews live on. And when I look at them now, and I see myself as this, you know, young pop doing this, you know, this incredible work, I think like, wow, how did I do that? How did I 
how did I survive that? How did I keep up with that? But it was an incredible turn on, you know, and it was very inspiring and really helped pave the way for a, a lot of the other stuff that I ended up doing in my career. The fact that you guys were so successful and got such a following and showed that you could do this kind of thing, do you, do you believe or do you let people convince you that you guys had an awful lot to do with City deciding they were going to launch much music? You guys had to have been impactful on that decision to launch a whole station about this stuff. Uh, oh, no question. The work that we did with the new music was incredibly uh, influential and and gave us our cred, certainly with the record companies and, and the musicians themselves. Um, and that certainly helped when we had to stand in front of the CRTC and pitch for the license. Um, at that, before we got the Much Music license, we also have been doing a show called Toronto Rocks with John Major. You may remember yep, that. Yep. And Christopher Ward was uh, doing uh, that show. For, I think I think it was that show. Or I forget the name of what he was doing. But we, you know, we had realized, or you know, I certainly realized it because I had been shown the way. But in the early days, John Martin certainly knew that music made for great television and the music scene. And, and Moses, of course, Moses Neimer, you know, absolutely a visionary. And, and he realized, too, that, you know, hey, that's just great entertainment. That's going to be great television if we bring it to you in the right way. And, you know, they were producing uh, concerts um, er, really early on, um, you know, with like Burton Cummings and the Guess Who. They did a big uh, concert that we televised. And this is, you know, it was still the 70s and we were doing that kind of thing. So... It's incredible, you know, sort of sad to see the way things have gone and the way things have changed in some ways. Those are definitely the glory days. Well, could it work today? On television. Could you launch a new music the way you guys did you it know, and make I, it work it's today? It's so ubiquitous now. It's so ubiquitous. Like people telling you, oh, bring back fashion television. We love fashion. It's just, it's become too common. It's too easily accessible. I mean, we were the ones at the time with the backstage pass, those valuable. Now, you know, you can see stuff coming at you online, you know, left, right, and center any time of day, video on, you know, command, shows on demand. I mean, it's just, it's different. It was, that was the days when there was real appointment viewing. You know, you had to be in front of your TV set at a certain time on a Sunday night or whatever to watch that show. And and it became a ritual and people looked forward to it. And if you wanted to hear the latest from whoever, you had to watch that show. And it's just not like that anymore because as stuff happens, immediately gets out there and you know there's always great you know room i suppose for good music journalism in that way but uh, you know we were capturing a, a scene that people hadn't been exposed to before well many seen, of the it, many of the artists we many of the artists we would not have even really seen visually before we knew what they sounded like but we didn't necessarily yeah. know what they looked like or hear their voice now exactly. th- that yeah. that mystery as you just say that mystery is kind of gone and then once that's gone it's just another interview I know, I know, and people still love celebrity, and they love to see, you know, stars on TV, and you still have, you know, success with stars like, you know, E-Talk or Entertainment Tonight or these little magazine shows that cover the scene, but it's it's not, it's just really not the same cachet because everybody's doing it and everybody's talking about it, and as I said, it's just, it's too ubiquitous, so it's kind of lost its charm, certainly lost its edge, uh, but, you know, it's just great that I was... You know, I was able to be part of that scene at that precious, precious time in uh, pop culture. And boy, it's, it's great that the, the old tapes <laughs> are still around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have to worry about preserving them now, you know, because a lot of those videotapes have to be digitized, right? Because they're going to 
You're going to crumble. Well, I discovered here. I discovered a few weeks ago that hilarious House of Frightenstein from way back in the 70s have all somehow landed on Crave TV. And I'm thinking, why are they not just doing this and dump them on Netflix or Crave yeah, or something, all the new music? They don't have all the rights or something. Well, maybe. They never used to you know, have people sign away, right? I don't know. You know what? I don't know. Who I knows? Talk to the powers that be there. But I think that there's a great... Uh, craving for that kind of nostalgia now. Sure there is. No sure question, there is. you know, yeah. Just before I let you go, I, ha- I have to ask you this one last thing. Uh, what yeah. was your honest reaction the first time you turned on your television set and J.D. Roberts was now with short hair, wearing a three-piece suit, standing <laughs> yeah. in front of the White House as John Roberts? Can I tell you something? All those years ago, like when we were still doing that, the new music and, and the much music, J.D. said to me on a very regular basis, one day, I'm going to go to the States, and I'm going to get a serious job at Network News. And, I, and <laughs> really? I said, yeah, right. You know, uh-huh. Like, and I didn't believe him, but boy, oh, boy, did he prove me wrong. <laughs> he, uh, he did it. You know, he had that goal from early on. He didn't want to spend the rest of his life in a mullet. <laughs> well, who does, really? <laughs> Although, with no hair <laughs> now, I'll happily take a mullet. I'll, I'll take that trade. Oh, it is, uh, it is great stories. It is, uh, and, and as I say, the show, it's uh, for anybody of, as I say, who grew up in the 70s or 80s, the new music was uh, was one of the shows that you would have to watch every week. Jeannie Becker, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Great pleasure, Scott. Thanks so much. Have a good one. That is, um, as I say, the, the new music, if you're, if you are, I don't know, 30, 20, you don't know what I'm talking about and you don't know what we were talking about and... It's difficult because, as Jeannie said, if you want to look up a band now, if you're hearing a song, like, you know what has completely to me still, it still blows my mind completely, is the Shazam app on your phone. You hear a song and you go, oh, who's that? And you just press a button on your phone and it tells you what the name of the song is, who's singing the song, a picture of the band, and you can then buy it and download it right onto your phone immediately. And I don't want to sound all old man, get off my lawn kind of thing, but there was a time and it wasn't that long ago when you would hear a song on the radio and you would go, huh, who's that? And then you might have to listen to it five times till you got the tune. So then you could kind of hum it to one of your friends and they'd go, oh, it's that. And then you would go to the record store and buy a record or a CD or a DVD but you still didn't know what the band looked like. And it was on a show like this when you finally got to see them and hear them because there wasn't the internet that you could go and just look everything up. I mean, look, beauty for the internet, done amazing things for us. But it, the one thing that I would argue that the internet, or maybe one of the things that the internet has done that maybe isn't quite as, that it's taken away is the mystery of stuff. When you can have the answer to everything immediately, there is no mystery. And that's what they provided. You would turn in every week and you would see these people and maybe like Iggy Pop, you would have shows that would be very memorable. Appreciate her joining us tonight. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.